Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Why are more Christians not rising up against Mm. us? Like, why are more Christians not personally offended that their faith is being blasphemed in such an egregious way. When Yeshua was like, bring the little children to me, this isn't what he meant, you guys. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. My name is Eric Skorzynski, and on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Miranda. Miranda is one of the hosts over at the Troubled podcast. You can find out more information about them at talktroubled.org or on the Troubled podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast content. I've talked a lot about the troubled teen industry on the Preacher Boys podcast, but they dive into it every week. They've got a huge emphasis on it. They talk to a lot of incredible guests exposing some of the horrific things that happen within an industry that's supposed to be helping children. And I want to let you guys know something else. This is actually the week that marks the one year anniversary of the Troubled Podcast. And they're just doing some incredible stuff over there. They're hitting top charts in several categories, and they're just doing a good job exposing this stuff. So before you finish this episode, or even right when you get done with the episode, head over to talktroubled.org, head over to talktroubled on Instagram or on Facebook, and just drop a comment letting them know you heard them on the Preacher Boys podcast, and you want to wish them a very happy anniversary of the show. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get into the episode. I just want to make mention of that. And I just want to say, keep up the good work to those of you on the Troubled Podcast. All right, guys, here's the interview with Miranda. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Miranda from the Troubled Podcast on the show today. We had a conversation earlier today, and if that's any indication, I think we won't struggle to find anything to talk about. But uh, Miranda, can you just introduce yourself to my audience and let them know a little bit about your background and what you're doing with the Troubled Podcast? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. So I'm a survivor myself, and I started the Troubled Podcast in January of 2020. Uh, We're right along there with you. And I'm a survivor from the Family Foundation School, which was one of the 
founding NATSAP facilities. It's involved in multiple current New York Child Victims Act Supreme Court cases of child rape and everything in between. And it is now defunct thanks to survivors speaking out. And so I got involved in advocacy proactively in the public face about a year ago. And uh, since I'm broke, I was doing a podcast. And then now we're finally moving forward on the docu-series. And uh, we're just trying to create a platform and a space for survivors to take their stories into their own hands. So these aren't exploited as these like American true crime, graphic, violent scenarios. And instead, we're getting at the deep why these things happen in our society, how an open secret like this was allowed to go on for over 100 plus years and what we're going to do about stopping it. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to get into kind of more of the background of it, but I definitely agree with you. There is a lot out there as far as the gritty true crime where it plays up the, I guess you'd say exploitative nature of diving into stories Mm. like this. And that was something when I started this show that I wanted to explicitly avoid was while this is technically true crime, and that's one of the categories it fits into in iTunes, you have to get into the emotion of these cases, not just the what was the most extreme punishment or what was the most extreme location, which I feel like too often hosts go down that rabbit hole. And I think it misses the point in the the humanity that's affected by these places. But coming out of one of these homes, I have to assume that like many survivors, you felt isolated or like what you had gone through was a unique experience. When was the first time that you really realized this is a widespread issue and there's people across the country who've experienced something like I have? Ooh, that's a really great way to put it. So I'm always fascinated by perspectives of people outside of our own groups. And so thank you for putting it in that way because now I'm boggled. I don't actually know. I think when I, I think when I realized that it wasn't just the family school, because my school had been around for 30 years and I knew about Elan because we'd been threatened with Elan and I knew about boot camps because they'd threatened us with wilderness boot camps and some kids did go. So I always knew that it was more than just my specific program, but I guess I always did assume it was insulated within my own experience and Mm. like, like personal relations of our program. So I would say it was watching the GAO testimonies. I don't know if you read the reports or watched the testimonies, but they started in 2007 is when the GAO starts investigating these programs, my school specifically, and a ton of WASP facilities. And watching those testimonies, I I was watching it for John Martin Crawford from my program, the man that I hold responsible for ending the nightmares there. And then shortly thereafter, the nightmares, because they wouldn't stop for him, ended his own life. And that's why I was watching that for people I knew. And then, yeah, it was a ton of other programs. Once I, once I started to go down the list of NATSAP facilities where children had died and asked NATSAP why they left the accreditation as it was and did they find anything wrong with it, I realized it was a much bigger issue. And honestly, I would say that was only a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago that I watched wow. those. Wow. And what was the emotion watching this? Was it a was it comforting that there were others? Did you feel just like this kind of terror that it was so spread out? Because I have to assume there was some part of you that was at least thankful that you weren't the only person who could understand what was going on. But what was the what were kind of the emotions you felt watching through those? Yeah, yeah. I think that for people seeing the the survivors speaking out now, realizing that they weren't alone, there's a relief element 
There's obviously, as you alluded to, also a horror element that it is so widespread and it's been going on for so long. And so obviously your school closing doesn't mean it ended. And I think that this is a deprogramming process. Like I really mean that. And coming out of brainwashing when you did not know that you were brainwashed for 10 plus years and you had no idea that your difficulties in life were related to this particular experience or you've been deliberately and proactively gaslit about how you deserved it, you were a troublesome teen and it wasn't Mm. that bad and you need to move on. I think when all those things start coming down, it's definitely time to have a nervous breakdown. And I did. And I think a lot of other people do. And coming out of that nervous breakdown, I didn't have medical insurance. I'd lost my corporate job after being ganged up on by a group of girls, which was just totally surreal. That was happening in a corporate environment for me. And I was facing homelessness and I couldn't get mental health access or any state support. And I was just, I was just losing it. And then I just sat on my girlfriend's couch because this Mm -hmm. is what I'd learned living 20 years with suicidality is that if I isolate, I'm more like, it's more of a possibility that I would act on suicidal ideations or inclinations. So I stayed at my girlfriend's house and literally watched the last stop and fix my kid in pieces while also going and chain smoking, gasp, wailing and calling Liz Ionelli. And then in on loop for over a week, I bought those movies and just watched them. So it was, it was a process. So you mentioned getting started with the podcast and I I definitely know I want to get into that quite a bit, but what was the moment where you thought, okay, I need to start interviewing people, start going the route of podcasting and how did that kind of take shape? So I got into documentary film over a decade ago to tell this story, period. That's why I got into documentary film. I interned with my heroes. I literally interned at my goal production companies and then did the typical newbie move where I ended up leaving after my internships and instead of staying, I got a paid job. I started making a documentary about the family school at that time. I think this was 2008. And I was working with a small team of survivors and their family. So at the same time, and this is what's so fun about survivors trying to speak out. At the same time, there was a feature documentary being made about the family school and mm. kind of pause. We, we like they've been in production for over a year. Let's wait till the documentary comes out. And then I was going to move forward. And enough that fam- you can see trailers and teasers on YouTube. But that documentary, like many others, was silenced. And no one ever, at least I've never seen it. And most of my friends never saw it. And so then after coming to Texas, I've been working with film crews and like, I just don't have money. And I really feel like this needed the proper care production wise that I just couldn't do off the seat of my pants for free. And so that's when podcasting came up. I'd listened to Joe Rogan for, I don't listen to him now, not, no, nothing against him, but like I had listened to him like a decade ago and thought that was an interesting method. And when I was doing research on Synanon and a lot of these different the Lester Roloff webs and things, I was listening to a lot of podcasts. There were survivor podcasts and mm-hmm. still are at the time. And what really jumpstarted that though was the conversation I wanted to have was not being had. And so that's what I recommend for anyone who's thinking about advocacy and whichever platform they want to have. It doesn't matter if 10 documentaries are made about this or there are 50 podcasts about the troubled teen industry. Mm. If the conversation that you need to be having is not being had, then you need to have that. Yeah, that's really good. And and it's important too that people, I, I think too often, and this goes more into just production and podcasting, but so many people feel like they are way too niche or their experience was too 
narrow. And the truth is the show that you're on right now is an incredibly niche show. There's not much more niche than exposing abuse within the independent Baptist movement, which is 3000 churches maybe, but there's so many people that resonate and the same with the Mm children's industry, whatever area of that, that you feel like you were affected by, there's something in that's going to resonate with somebody. And if you're just going to go broad and I get that question all the time, why don't you go a little bit broader? The truth is that the saying there's riches and niches that that doesn't just apply to money. I think that applies to just value of your show. And so I commend you for seeing that, that vacancy and filling it and using your specific voice there. There's sure there's other people that are going to make documentaries and have podcasts, but if it's not sharing what you're feeling, why not start your own? <laughs> why not go that direction? But yeah, what's been the response to the podcast? Because I know definitely this is a world that is filled with a lot of shared experiences of deep trauma. There's a very tight-knit community of survivors that have been in all sorts of these homes. How did they respond when you started approaching the subject in a podcast format? Survivors are stoked. I think that survivors of the troubled teen industry in general, I think this is across the board, have two responses. They're either super excited that someone wants to have the conversation and they want to be in the middle of it, no matter where it is, how high energy it is, they just have to be involved. And then there's the other ones who are just very, it's a very guarded personal Mm -hmm. experience and which makes psychologically, let's just break it down real quick. These people have been invalidated their experiences. They've been gaslit Mm -hmm. and all of this for decades by their own family, by their churches, by their spouses, by everything. And so then when someone is feels free in speaking their truth, and even though it's not easy for most of us, I'm sure it's not even for you, that can be triggering to them. It feels like, wait, I, my truth wasn't valid enough. Nobody wanted to listen to it. Nobody wanted to give me mm-hmm. that space, but there's space for this. We haven't had too much of that. Luckily for us as a Survivor podcast, for the most part, survivors are completely supportive. Most of our audience are survivors, are social workers, and people who are interested in it from that perspective. We do have, of course, like people who just actually want to ride along and they think it's actually interesting. And I'm always, like I said earlier, like super stoked to see what their perspective is because number one, I always feel like they don't have the base information for the stories that we're telling. And I always feel like we're asking them to jump in the middle of this codex and just get it. And I don't (laughs) think that's fair, but it is a podcast and I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, that's something I've seen as well. And I am an outsider uh, to the trouble tea industry. We talked a little bit prior to this conversation, but I'm in that category of not really understanding a lot of that world. And I'm really reliant on, I I mentioned on previous episodes, and she's been on Amanda Householder or Mm -hmm. Hannah, who's doing um, a lot of cool stuff on TikTok as well. And I'm reliant on these stories to understand that perspective. And it's really cool to me that there's so many people like you who are sharing their voice and letting people like us who are on the outside understand there's a problem and then prompting us to take some action. Because I know when I started finding out about these places, I was like, I don't even know what to do. How do you even help this situation? Because it it really does. It seems totally hopeless when you're looking at it as a big picture. So I'm curious to to talk to you just about the troubled teen industry in general. I think 
people listening at least have some basic understanding since they've listened to the show and have you know heard prior interviews. If you haven't and you're listening to this, definitely go back and find some of those interviews. But I'm curious from your perspective, one of the things that always comes up in my mind is there are some teens who need help or are in rough situations. And I'm asking this knowing what the right answer is, but do you think that there is a place for any type of quote unquote troubled teen home? Or do you think the concept itself is pretty flawed? I think the concept itself is rooted and founded in colonization, intrinsically racist and oppressive and violent colonization. And no, there's no place for it. If the question is, is there a place for congregate care for youths that have issues where they, that's what, that is the last stop. So that's a question that we've been having as a nation and continue to have. And I think that it goes very deep. We've been talking with people within the foster care industry and over 60% nationally of children that are put in institutionalized congregate care are removed for poverty-based neglect. And so just based on that, I can tell you that 60% of the children that are removed from their families and traumatized by that removal, these these American families that are dismantled by these systems that are allegedly in place to protect and support them, this is happening because instead of putting this money into our communities and into tackling poverty, which is the root cause of so many of these issues that we're looking at with these teens in the first place, we'd rather spend hundreds of millions of dollars per state a day institutionalizing children that could be with their families. So that's like a broader question. Yes, there's always going to be a child that is their parents are abdicating responsibility or there is no one for the child or perhaps the child has such extreme behavioral and psychological issues Mm -hmm. that there is not an in-home placement available for that child. But I think that if we were only dealing with that very small percentage of children that genuinely need to have this conversation, then it would be fine. Like it would really be fine. We would have the resources, the professionals and the focus to make sure that they were safe and being given the best possible care that our tax dollars can be paying for instead of paying to torture, traumatize, rape and murder children. Yeah. So you mentioned the cost and there's an extreme amount of money being dumped into these homes. And obviously these homes are very incentivized to remain open because it's a huge (laughs) cash cow industry. I forget what the statistic is, but millions and millions of dollars gets billions and billions. And what's the, what is keeping people from putting resources into alternative forms of preventing this stuff that would be much more cost effective? Oh, you know what? I think it's just the way that our systems are currently set up in this country because there are other countries where they have communal living options for uh, homeless veterans, for people Mm. with dementia, for homeless youth, for LGBTQT youth, for people with mental issues, memory issues, and things of that nature. Our country is really not set up that way. The said the money is in the middleman, mm-hmm. whether it's healthcare, which is really sick care, and the money being with insurance companies and pharmaceuticals, or with this situation where they're making so much money that they don't, we have no idea what the statistics are. We've been saying $2 billion a year, and based on Michigan tax funded institutionalized placement alone, that number is, is that there's no way, like there's no way. It is 
unbelievable how much money is going into this. Mm. And all and these systems have been in place for hundreds of years because what we're looking at is a mutation of the residential schools for the indigenous. And they're still functioning mm. like in South Dakota. Some of those same institutions are still troubled teen industry programs today with over 50% native children in their facility. So when you were saying that you think it is, it's like this colonization, it's rooted in a lot of racism. That's not just buzzwords. You're backing that with actual statistics and what these homes were built for initially. This is what a behavior modification and assimilation is for, is to subdue, conform, and control a population. And generally, what we have is we have colonizers going into a place where there's a culture firmly rooted in the people that they're attempting to conquer, control, and convert. And so residential youth placement and programs, as well as workhouses and things for adults, are standard in every single country that was colonized. So I don't, I'm I'm assuming you're not familiar with this because this is outside of our normal shtick, but I, I would love you to interview some people related to this because this is globally very important. So this week in Ireland, my homeland, I'm a third generation Irish American. I have every intention of doing whatever I can to return Turtle Island to its original inhabitants and then go back to where my people came from and help free Ireland, which is still under British colonial control, of course. But in Ireland, their residential program was focused towards obviously the Irish, not the English, not the colonizers, but the actual immigrant, like the regular Irish people, the Irish travelers, their gypsies, a very dirty word and things like that. And so if I'm a single mother, I got pregnant out of wedlock right after I got out of my program on birth control. So reminder, everybody, antibiotics, cancel those out. Thank you. I love my daughter. She's amazing. Aside, had I had that happened to me in Ireland, they would have put me in a mother and baby home, ripped my child from me, either sold her huh. to an American with false documents, adopted her out to a family against my will, or killed her. There are over 800 baby corpses in the sewers of tomb mother and baby home alone that the Irish government is refusing to exhume. That's just one thing. And so they actually have a survivors of institutional abuse commission in Ireland because one single woman decided to get the birth and death records for tomb and figured out that 800 babies were missing. And then they heard a story of a child who'd found a skull in a sewer They went in that sewer. They found out the babies, in fact, the children as well, were in the sewer. And this one woman refused to shut up. She went on podcasts all over the world until she shamed Ireland enough to open up a abuse commission and look into the mother and baby homes. And then this week, yesterday, in fact, President Higgins signed into effect the doll had voted to seal survivor testimonies, survivors like me, their testimonies, their medical records, their birth certificates, and everything for 30 years. And this will thwart justice of any of the people who did this to them. This will make it impossible for them to be reunified with their brothers, sisters, mothers, and children. And they have no access to their own medical history. And so simultaneously around the world, all of this oppression is coming to the surface and we're being able to, we're so, we're so blessed to have the platforms that we have and to have the focus that we have and to be able to assist people in unearthing these open secrets because everybody knows about this. Everybody knows. We talked earlier. I would love to get into it. We all giggled and called our friends with popcorn to watch Dr. Phil send children's 
screaming in the middle of the night to turn about ranch. And I went to a program and still watched that as reality candy after my program. And that's how brainwashed I was. Like, I just want to put that in perspective. When I watched that this year, it gave me a panic attack, but I was able to watch that after the program and it was still ridiculous American humor for me. Yeah. Let's talk about that because Dr. Phil, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, normalized those types of programs, and, yeah. and, which is confusing because, you know, obviously there was the <laughs> Hepzibah House piece that he did this year. And that was something that kind of brought a lot of attention for me because I'm coming at this from the IFB perspective. But yeah, Dr. Phil is, I know that he gets some shade, but he is in many ways a legitimate, I use that, I guess you can use that word in a lot of ways, but he's a legitimate doctor he's not just he's not a fake doctor he's not sitting up there with i think he is but i I don't think he has active credentials does he have active isn't that the kind of the whole thing he's not really a doctor he is he is i don't know that's not my well i i believe so but i i just i gotta see he sees so many things that are damaging but it's weird to me that someone like that misses I guess it is the entertainment value, just that they miss such a, gl- a glaring issue like a troubled teen home. It's just that that's yeah. super weird to me when I start processing it. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in thinking that's super weird. But again, no, you're right. There's probably amazing affiliate deals with these kind of places, <laughs> I have to assume. Yeah. But yeah, I'm trying to think. So I have a lot of thoughts. Well, he's, rush- he's affiliated. So like to dig into the Dr. Phil thing really quickly, he's affiliated with Turnabout Ranch. That's why he's sending all those kids there. He sent Sinead O'Connor into a program years ago. I think it was in the nineties and held her against her will. And she's been trying to get at him since then. Also, you guys, I know you have an audience that's like very proactive. So I'm really hoping they hear this. Mm -hmm. There is a young man named Clay Brewer facing life in prison right now because he was sent away on the Dr. Phil show. He was abducted in the middle of the night while he was on heavy drugs and he was forced to detox cold turkey from these heavy drugs without access to his bipolar medications in the woods in Turnabout Ranch. And a couple days into his detox, in an attempt to escape his abduction, he took a rock, hit a staffer, stole a car and escaped, doesn't remember any of it, but that staffer died and he pled Mm -hmm. guilty and he's facing life in prison right now. These are real world effects of this kind of entertainment that Dr. Phil is using. And you hit the nail on the head. I think Dr. Phil absolutely gets the credit for normalizing this Mm. child abduction and detainment model and turning it into something that like we're all okay with. Right. Well, it definitely, I think everybody, and this is no shade on my, my family, but I think everybody, when they did the episodes, most spoiled kids or whatever, like, I know I wasn't the only kid whose mom was like, you better watch this because if this is how you're going to act. And it was like, it was a joke, but also a little bit spooky because it's like, oh, they really go hardcore with this stuff. But yeah, normalizing it in the culture and making it something where people become super, super okay with it is just crazy. But Mm -hmm. just circling back to the colonization thing, because that's super, super interesting to me because- on the religious front, it makes a ton of sense because so much of religion is about conversion. It's about making people act in accordance to what you believe. There's some who I definitely think try to persuade, which I think is a okay. I think if you believe something, feel free to tell people that's what you believe. 
but trying to get someone, um, I forget how you worded it, but you just said you're trying to get people to act as part of a unit, like a part of what society deems normal. That's something that comes up in almost every single episode that I do on this industry. Mm-hmm. It's how do I make them act like a Christian? How do I make someone who's saying that they're gay act straight? How do I make somebody who doesn't believe in God and have a conversion experience? And that stuff just comes up over and over again. What percentage of the people that you talk to would you say their homes were religiously affiliated? Because it seems like it would be more than the ones that aren't. But maybe I'm wrong. It's more than the ones that aren't. No, you're right. It's more than the ones that aren't. I think, okay, remember there are multiple funnels to the trouble teen industry. Uh, And we're talking right now uh, to anybody listening about the modern tough love trouble teen industry based on the cult synonym. So obviously we talk mostly about private placement. Like I think most of the people that you've talked to, myself included, it was our parents had this bright idea of tough love, right? They were involved in one of those organizations. I think the demographic needs to be people who are attempting to conform and present a front to their society. So a lot of us grew up in a story I've heard my own very often is we were Catholic school kids, altar servers. Often our parents were Vietnam vets or veterans, things of that nature. There's a ton of divorcees and adoptive kids and things like that. And I think that a lot of those things are just specific targets for the demographic. I'm not sure that some sort of like reasonable science-based, like humanist parents who like are going to do this because I think the whole reason that you send your kid to behavior modification is because you're freaked out by what society thinks about your family because your kid listens to rock and roll or makes out with girls or has black nail polish. Like other words, why do you send your kid to this unless, and I've heard of this, this I feel is the most rare. A lot of parents are genuinely hoodwinked when they're sent through like a counselor. There's a lot of psychotic counselors that were, sending kids with emotional issues and CPTSD or who had been violently raped to go to this nice horse ranch to get over it. But right. instead the abuse continued and yeah. that's different. Interesting. Just really quick. And I know we might be jumping around, but you're mentioning some things that I love jumps. <laughs> you're mentioning some things I think need to be talked about. And you mentioned the cult influence on these homes and the origins there. Mm-hmm. And I can never say the name, right? Is it Synanon? Okay, I said it right. Good. No, you got it. Awesome. Yeah. Good. Amanda told me, or no, it was Hannah that had come on a previous episode. She told me a little bit when we were we're actually at the rally in Utah, and she was telling me like they all have some religious influence if you think about it because they come from this group synonym. Yeah. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she's oh, you haven't heard about that. (laughs) But can you talk about that background a little bit because? especially for people coming from a religious background, that's probably going to be pretty interesting to them. Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is how the tough love industry started. So we're leaving out residential schools in the United States and Canada and Ireland and in 1996 and 1998, respectively. But in the late 40s era is when you have AA, which is what gets the rap for this. But it's really the Oxford group. So the Oxford group is where the Le- it's more Lester Roloff is going to come more directly off of Oxford Group than Synanon. And so they have a bunch of weird tenants. Carl Jung is affiliated with them, which makes Miranda very sad because Miranda loves me some Carl Jung. And I just found out about that recently. So I'm digging and I'm digging. But the Oxford Group inspires to a great extent AA. 
out of AA, if you guys aren't familiar, a big part of it when you work your steps is you tell your story, you shock everyone with all the crazy shit you did. And you're like, I don't do this anymore. And so everybody's favorite AA speech guy is this narcissist named Charles E. Dietrich. And so in the late 40s, he designed Tough Love, which is originally tender, loving care, which is this philosophy around breaking down the identity of a person through group attack therapy, which he called the game, which, oh my God, Eric, we need to get these archives if we need to put our money together to buy these. But you will not believe this. The game was literally radio broadcast in California, like on public radio. I'm not kidding. Yeah, this is a thing because Natalie Woods and like Bridget Fonda were members of Synanon and a bunch of other celebrities. So Synanon, basically, it's the answer to the problem of if you're not an alcoholic and you're a drug addict, where do you go? And so Chucky D creates Synanon, which is more the original N.A. And they buy this fancy hotel, which allegedly people think is the reason for the song Hotel California. And it's this hotel on the beach in California where They smoke a ton of cigarettes and they have a lot of sex, but they don't drink or do drugs anymore. And so this is, this becomes like a rehab for like really cool cats that are involved in music and film and all this stuff. There's even a movie with Eartha Kitt playing his wife in it. This is real life, you guys. Like it's the real thing. So after his wife though, Betty dies, Chucky D kind of goes downhill. I guess she was like the light part of his experience. And so this is when this rehab, which for the record During this period, the government starts force mandating people who get arrested for drug offenses to Synanon. And that includes multiple people who wind up missing. They've gone missing for literally ever. They probably killed them. Who knows? They're gone. And so Synanon turns into its official cult. It is known as America's most dangerous cult. It's absolutely a cult. They forced marriages, forced divorces. They removed children from the home, forced abortions. There were over 86 recorded mass gang beatings, members of Synanon attacking members of the community that were speaking out against them. Two really great little a married couple journalist team in that small town ended up covering the story, eventually helped shut it down with the help of an attorney that they put a rattlesnake in his mailbox and won the Pulitzer Prize. Chucky e. D never served time in jail because by the time that he was arrested in the 90s, he had cancer and good attorneys. And so they sent him home. Synanon's closed in the United States, but it doesn't matter. By the time it closed in 1996, it had already turned into what it is today. So what Hannah's talking about and everyone else are, after this rehab concept, they started taking in kids. It wasn't just adults. And so in 1971, the United States government grant funds a fully teen Synanon-based program called The Seed. By 1973, uh, Florida has gotten the government to withdraw funding from The Seed based on the fact that it's using brainwashing techniques like the North Koreans, and it's incredibly abusive. But the fun part about the United States government is as they remove money from seed for being abusive, they put money in straight ink, which is created by Mel Sembler, who just came out of the seed. Mel Sembler goes on to also form Kids Incorporated. Both straight and kids are closed by the U.S. government for mass abuse, including rape of children, of course, per usual with these programs. And he goes on just like WASP creator Robert Litchfield to serve with Mitt Romney as financial co-chairs in his different presidential campaigns. Mel Sembler was a U.S. ambassador after all this. Like these connections are incredibly deep. And so that's what we see. What we see is that all of these youth programs, whether it was CDU, which gets a lot of credit, which was started 
um, by another Mel Wasserman, who is obsessed with Charles E. Dietrich. He went through Synanon, or it's the SEED fund, like the programs that come out of the SEED, which are the Synanon teen programs. All these programs can be traced back to Synanon. And so all of their models and the way they deal with kids, and this is why everybody has a very similar experience. Like it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how different the facility was, the underlying, you get called up into a, in front of the group of your peers. Everyone tells you that you're a dirty, stupid whore. Your parents hate you. Everybody wishes they could kill you and save the world. And you need to either get with the program or kill yourself because, and, and that's what everyone experiences because this is all the game, which was created in Synanon. I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> Lots of good information. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, that is one thing that's been jarring to me is I've interviewed people from Florida, Missouri, California, Mexico, several different places. And all of their experiences are very similar, if not exactly the same, with the only variation generally being whether they were dropped off or whether they were taken in the middle of the night. And yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research for sure to be done on that to understand that cultish background to it. But yeah, super, super fascinating. And it all goes back to what we were just talking about. It's making people conform. And that's most of the people I've talked to have got sent there. There's, they're either, they've either been someone who was, had an undiagnosed mental illness of bipolar disorder or something like that, that they later, or some form of Asperger's or something that was contributing to behavior that their parents didn't understand, but never got checked medically. Or it's people where they were just stepping over the line of what was considered okay. So whether that was like you said, listening to rock music, dressing in a certain way, doing things that pretty much every teenager does at some point, which is trying to figure (laughs) out who they are by different things. Yeah. Super, super interesting. I have a million different things I could talk to you about because- I could go down the cold rabbit trail for a while. I know. But no, it was here because you'd been focused on IFB. Did you even know? Because you guys have the Lester Roloff rabbit hole. Yeah. And that rabbit hole in itself is international and huge. Uh, like that's, it's like a wasp. It's bigger than wasp, like ultimately. Yeah, that's my, so my understanding was I, I knew of Agape boarding school in Missouri And that was all I knew about. And I knew that it was a positive, great place to send people to help them. That's what I knew. (laughs) Yeah. And then I started doing this podcast about the IFB. And then it was either, I believe it was Amanda was the first person that reached out to me. And she was like, hey, my parents were at Agape, but there's also Circle of Hope. I was like, wow, there's two of these places? That's crazy. I can't believe there's two of these troubled teen homes. And then she's, no, there's like hundreds of these homes. And yeah, I, I had always heard the name Lester Roloff. I was familiar with, they'd written some books and he was a pastor. I did not know anything about the troubled teen industry up until this year. And I've got stacks and stacks of news articles and which actually would be great. I should actually copy or fax those or something yeah. to you, but it's amazing the the stuff. And I have the Christian newspapers that were written where it's praising Roloff for winning victory at the Supreme Court to keep his homes open, crazy stuff. I was just talking with Amanda about the other day. But yeah, the Lester Roloff thing is insane. And that dude made a ton of money doing this stuff. He had a private plane he flew around in. He was, (laughs) I forget it, it was in the millions when he was it was 1990 something and the New York times published something about how much his programs brought in. 
And then when you hear about the living standards in these programs, they weren't spending much to operate whatsoever. But again, it's following the trails of money all throughout. But yeah, I do want to talk about one thing and we've talked about a little bit beforehand and it all goes back to connections and people connected to that world. But I know there was a little bit of stir because I did an episode of the show where I had David Gibbs III on the show and we did a conversation and I had a couple people reach out to me. I know that the Gibbs name in the IFB world has a ton of baggage because of David Gibbs Jr., who's his father, the Christian Law Association, which is notorious even outside the movement because of the cases they've been involved in. And the Christian Law Association, I feel, is one of the most corrupt organizations in the IFB. And their hands are all over every case involving pedophile pastors, predators within churches. It's a very money-hungry, crazy organization and does a lot of damage control for the IFB. David Gibbs III, I've been in touch with him for the last year or so, and I talked about that on the show. He's separated from his dad. He's not part of the Christian Law Association. And I've mentioned on the show, he's helped a lot of people directly who've been victims of abuse within the IFB. But one thing that's also been brought to my attention is there seems to be connections to the troubled teen industry, uh, which I've had as I've done more interviews and there's been more name recognition within the troubled teen community. There's been some people concerned about that. So I'm going to flip it to you and let you ask me a couple questions because I know that you are coming at this knowing this whole side of it and knowing the conversations being had and the concerns that are there. And I told you beforehand, I think transparency is the best way to handle all of these kind of things. And I'll just lay it out too. If I was ever aware of something extremely wrong happening, I'd be the first one to be doing a special episode about it. I'm curious to talk about this a little bit more. I know we had a little bit of a brief conversation before this, but can you explain to me some of the concerns around David Gibbs III and even going so far back as when he was with the CLA? if you want to, and the connections with the troubled teen industry. Yeah, sure. I would love to be a target for David Gibbs III, (laughs) you guys, which is not Eric's fault. As he said, we're having this conversation because this is a conversation that's being had in the community. And you've been interviewing members of the community, our sister survivors and brother survivors. And my Amanda Householder is my closest ally. I talk Mm -hmm. to her multiple times a day. We've walked through this experience, shutting down Circle of Hope together daily. So I trust her completely. She's dealt with you a lot more. And that comment you just made, that's what she says. She believes 100% that if you had information that David Gibbs was directly involved with child abuse, that you would be the guy to break the story. And based on my conversation with you, I believe that too. The allegation, I think the, most of the information that you had prior to us chatting was about the CLA and his dad. And that's something that needs to be really important because I had this conversation with two people today about David Gibbs and they wanted to keep up bringing, bringing up David Gibbs Jr. Just like Amanda Householder is not responsible for the sins of her father. No one is responsible for the sins of their father. Mm. Okay. David Gibbs, the third's involvement in the CLA as himself is his own, but as far as his father being Lester Roloff's personal attorney and the CLA defending every abusive program within the Lester Roloff uh, dynasty, that's for the CLA. My big thing, and I did a little timeline, but my big thing period would be 
My biggest concern is currently, I brought up the New York Child Victims Act. My program being in New York, we're very involved with that Supreme Court jazz right now because there were so many pedophiles in my program and others. And Freedom Village, one of the less to roll off brother-sister programs with ours in New York, we've been working heavily with them. And currently, just so everybody's 100% clear, the people responding to filings for the multiple child rape allegations for Freedom Village in New York is the NCL and David Gibbs III. So mm-hmm. David Gibbs's personal law firm is the legal, and I've seen the actual response filings to these Supreme Court th- cases, like I have them myself, they're on it. They say that the NCLL is the parent company of Freedom Village USA. So Freedom Village USA was human trafficking children to senators. Um, the youngest child that I've seen whose case is closed and it's confirmed of child rape was 10 years old in that program. And their parent company is David Gibbs III's company, his law firm at this point. I'm not sure when that happened, though, because I think ultimately the way it works is like there's a pastor that started Freedom Village. He's still functional. It's like Fletcher Brothers in Florida. And so he's the one that founded that and he has a radio program. But yeah, so the CLA, you know, David Gibbs was the CLA from 93 to 2012. And you brought up the Lester Roloff thing. So that's really important. The, in 1973, you guys, I'm in Texas. In 1973, Texas had 16 girls from the Lester Roloff, Rebecca Holmes, testify to being beaten with whips and paddles, handcuffed to drain pipes, left in isolation rooms for days at a time. And this is what created, we created Texas law for the Child Care Licensing Act based on Lester Roloff. So if you were to go back and read it all, the reason that law was created was because of Lester Roloff. And it was David Gibbs III himself in 2001 that went to Texas and actually got the religious exemption clause, which means that currently in Texas, religious programs, so all these Lester Roloff, all these Baptist programs, do not have to be licensed with the state of Texas. And that's specifically because David Gibbs III himself went with the CLA, of course, mm-hmm. and argued that there should be a religious exemption for these programs. And you met with Hannah. So Hannah's from Lighthouse. That's the Lester Roloff program. Yeah. In 2000, David Gibbs defended Lighthouse when two teens were beaten and urinated on by staff. And during his testimony, he said that he did not find that overtly harsh. He's mm-hmm. argued before multiple cases on corporal punishment. The Religious Freedom Act, in 2000, he expanded that. So what it means for Texas, here now. And you'll see this across the board. This is in Missouri. We're fighting this in Missouri too. They put this there as well as CLA. Thank you guys. Is that parents actually sign over their parental rights to the program and CPS is not legally allowed access to children. When we called CPS on children that were being abused at Circle of Hope, Amanda's dad's program in Missouri, CPS would go in, but they could not interview the children because they needed parental authority and mid householder was legally their parent. He reached access to CPS and religious exemption gives these. Obviously, no religion means well by the children if they're creating exemptions that deny access to CPS. Those are obviously going to be issues. So it's just stuff like that. And for the record, when this Texas has with Lester Roloff and Rebecca Girls Homes about paddling the girl, Lester Roloff actually took the stand himself and he did not deny any of the allegations. And he said, better pink bottoms than black souls. So right. just to put that out there, Mitt Romney, Bain Capital owns some of the most abusive programs and they're so proud of converting the little gay children. Right. They're saving their souls. That's where it's so difficult. And especially when you're coming at it from the religious angle, is that 
the conversation, especially around corporal punishment, which is one that I've alluded to on the show, but there is a lot of religious, I don't want to keep saying religion so broadly, but there's a lot of religious tradition that relies on corporal punishment, more harsh, that idea of breaking the will of the child, which is, it's abusive garbage. Like the the books that talk about breaking the will of your child as early as a few months old, it's insanity. It's crazy. But then you also have, and, and this is what we talked about. You have these people who will say we're against abuse, definitely against sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, rape, fill in the blank. But then they leave this huge wide window open for quote unquote discipline that involves very harsh punishments that no medical professional or psychologist would recommend ever. And so you get stuck in this weird position. And this is what I told you a little bit off mic. That's what's so hard for me to understand. So like I look at David Gibbs III and I see basically two, I'm getting two sides of this story. So like I know firsthand many victims that have been helped directly in amazing ways. But again, I also don't want to say you'd be the person that every person doesn't need, which is I had great experiences. And so therefore it discredits everything that you're saying. And so I'm also getting this other picture and definitely for the CLA days. And I've told Gibbs this, if I had known you in your CLA days, I don't think we'd be having the conversation we're having now. That would be very positive. But I also too, that's a big blind spot for me. It's one that I'm interested to talk with him about is how do you defend homes that enact these brutal punishments, these brutal physical punishments on teenagers and children younger than teenagers in some of these homes? And this is, this is a fight I get into with a lot of Christians in general. And myself being a Christian, it doesn't make me super popular. I feel like a man without a people sometimes because I have people that are upset that I identify as a Christian and then people that are upset that... I don't identify harder. One of the things that I I really struggle with, and I think this would put me at odds with even a David Gibbs III and a National Center for Life and Liberty and any organization like that, is I do not think religious liberty should be a blanket protection for anything that you want to do. And I, I understand you should be able to worship the way you want to. I understand that you should be able to, as long as you're not harming others, you should be allowed to live in accordance with what you believe. But to go over a home and take children who are not necessarily a part of your religious denomination, who are not there by free will or on, on their own accord, and to have this compulsory religious upbringing and to, to these harsh punishments in the name of religious liberty. I, I made a post the other day that religious liberty should not cover abuse. There's no religious exemption for abusing a child. But I look at so many people that are coming into these situations and they look at a church that got involved with abuse or they look at an organization where a rape happened or aggressive punishment that led to the harm of a child. And they'll say, okay, that's bad. That happened but we can't give up that quote unquote religious liberty. And that's a situation I just can't get behind. And I don't, I don't understand that argument. I don't understand the keeping open. And again, you could look at a school and be like, there's no reports of abuse at that school, 
but it doesn't change the fact that the DNA of these places lends itself to abuse. And mm-hmm. pa- painting it with this protection of religious liberty is not the way to handle it. Because look at guys like Gus Roloff and the way that was abused. It was abused constantly. And so anyway, I, I know we talked before. I know we talked a little bit. I honestly wish we would have recorded that conversation. <laughs> but I know. You know, our, our conversation about Gibbs in general, I just... I'm sitting here and I know there is so much stigma around the name Gibbs, whether you're talking about the third or junior. I, all I can say is, and again, transparency is the only thing that I can opt for. In my experience, he has done a lot to, to assist me in doing this show and defend what I'm doing. I know firsthand that he's helped many victims of sexual abuse and physical abuse within the IFB. He's been open to talking to people from troubled teen homes that I've referred or that I've asked if I could refer over. I don't think any of have actually ended up reaching out, but the ones that have connected with them from churches have been helped and in many times in ways that were not advantageous to him. But I also believe that, like I said, transparency, when there's something that's problematic, it needs to be addressed. And I think that Gibbs affiliation with this home, which I did not know he had an active affiliation until today, that's incredibly problematic and needs to be addressed. And it wouldn't matter to me if I had known him for a year, which is the case, or if I'd known him since I was a kid. I think everybody needs to be accountable for their actions and give an answer for that stuff. And I'm hopeful that bringing this up to him, that that I will get a good answer on it and that there is something that's being missed or something that I'm not getting but like I said, if that's not the case and if there's something wrong happening here, I want to be the first one to say that's wrong. But yeah, I appreciate you bringing all that stuff up and appreciate the chance to talk about it. And I always appreciate when people ask as opposed to make an assumption of where I'm at because I really have tried to show in my actions and words that I do care about victims of abuse, that I do want to see this stuff come to an end. And while we may not all agree on the method of getting there, I would hope that that's not something that's easily questioned on my end. Yeah. And to your point about the Christianity aspect or the religion aspect, why are more Christians not rising up against Mm. this? Like, why are more Christians not personally offended that their faith is being blasphemed in such an egregious way. When Yeshua was like, bring the little children to me, this isn't what he meant, you guys. Like, there's no way. And I think it's, I really hope it's up to Christians. And you're still a Christian. I, I still consider myself a Christian. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was raised Catholic. I'm not religious. I'll never, ever be religious again. I can't join a political party, anything remotely culty, even dating. That's so culty for me. Mm. Like, I can't. But I'm hoping that Christians will rise up and really demand some sort of justice here in the name of the children. And yeah, as far as David Gibbs and you go, I believe that you're a truth seeker. So regardless of what the truth is, I have a feeling you're going to find it pretty soon. And your people who want to dig, definitely dig. Last year was when this came back up. So it's Mm. very recent. Freedom Village tried to move to South Carolina, but survivors blocked it by informing the neighborhood of what had happened with all the child trafficking in New York. And so Hannah Grace Homes, which David Gibbs is the director of their partnership with Freedom Village, they didn't make that location and everybody went to Florida. So everyone's in Florida now, which 
if you ever have a chance to look into the horrific Dozier School for Boys, Florida is like a mass grave for children in the troubled teen industry. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking into it. And I know you've sent me some information, so I'll be diving in as well and really trying to dig through it. And to answer your question about why Christians aren't, I'll try to be careful here. And again, I'm prefacing this. I know, I was like, I I do identify as a Christian and I'm a pretty orthodox Christian and I I'm coming at this. So what I'm about to say, I, I rarely get into purely like here's my religious belief or here's my gripes with Christianity or evangelicalism. So I just want to preface this. If you're a Christian listening, know that's where I'm coming from. If you're someone who's not a Christian, I'm not going to turn this into a come to the altar conversion moment. I'm just going to share from my perspective. Honestly, I don't understand why there isn't more uproar about this, why there isn't about the troubled teen industry. I think that there's been a very blurred line for some time between religion and politics. And I think that there is this, I think these schools offer this kind of rigidity and structure that people seem to confound with Christianity and this cultural moralism and ideals that people just tend to lump in with what being a Christ follower is. But then I also, there's also a huge part of it that's a mystery to me. And again, I'm saying this as a Christian, but Christians often have their head in the sand when it comes to cultural issues, whether that's race, whether that's abuse, whether it's fill in the blank. And I don't understand why. I do not understand how, look at the podcast that I'm doing. The fact that I I posted the other day, the fact that I was at a church for 18 years as a staff kid who worked every ministry at the church at some point growing up, choir, even though I couldn't sing, bus routes, van routes, going in, I knocked every door in the city I grew up in and invited people to church. Like I was all in and All of those connections, all of the youth pastor I treated like a dad, everybody cut me off when I started speaking out about the fact that a child molester was relocated and just acted business as usual at our church and was on the platform every single Sunday. And I sit there looking, I'm like, how did an organization, a Christian organization find me so irredeemable and work so hard to quote unquote restore someone who a few weeks before that had been molesting a 15 year old girl when he's 30 years old. And so Mm. I look at situations like that. I look at the troubled teen industry and I look at the sexual abuse and I just think there's blinders on. And I think the biggest thing is just pride. I think that there's such a pride in being the evangelical, and I'm going to get in trouble just for saying that phrase, but that's really what it is. (laughs) This evangelical moral majority that Jerry Falwell popularized that term, but the moral majority and to expect or to accept that there is some blemish on their pure religion makes them look bad. It's bad branding. And so I think it's much easier to weigh the odds, weigh the, weigh the, the differences between who brings the most value and it's easy to get rid of the person who's been abused and keep the abuser and do a little bit of rebranding and just keep rolling ahead. And I think that too many Christians are so scared of 
them looking bad. That's the number one thing I get about the show is, aren't you worried that exposing stuff is going to make Christianity look bad? It's like maybe the rape and the, the beatings make Christianity look bad. Like maybe Christianity would look a lot better if people would start calling this stuff out in their own church. Instead of it just being this, let's conceal it and don't show what's going on kind of MO. Because corporate America does that fine on its own. There's plenty of organizations that do that. Like why wouldn't the church be the bastion of righteousness that it claims to be when it goes to the polls and actually act on this stuff when they have something that hits close to home? But yeah, when it comes to that question, I don't know. And that's the reason I struggle to go to an organized church because I just know more often than not, the quote unquote Christians I meet are in it for the label and it's because they vote Republican. It has nothing to do with some kind of real true belief in something better than the status quo. It's usually just tied to some label that they want to call themselves. But And again, I'll say something that will get me in trouble, but that's the same question I faced during election season where I see Christians lining up saying we're voting for the most Christian president of all time. And Mm, I know for sure, I know for sure people are going to get mad about that, but I really don't care is I have people saying we hate the way that people are marginalized, abused, talk bad about, but then they're going to, they're also in their next post going to, you know, praise a guy who does all of those same things and supports all the positions that marginalize and harm people the same exact way. It doesn't make sense to me. It's again, this is just me. This is not, this is not normally what preacher boys is, but whenever (laughs) I sit there with the question of why are Christians doing what they do? I don't know. And I've spent the short 25 years I've had on this planet. I've spent the last 10 trying to figure out why they're acting like this. Like why on earth, when I'm flipping through the Bible, do I not get any sense of abusing people being okay? But yet that seems to be the message that every leader that I ever trusted growing up got. So I don't know what version that we were reading that was different, but it's incredibly frustrating. And it's especially frustrating when people take the label of being Christian and apply it to the most horrendous and horrific acts that I've ever seen and that have ever been recorded have come out of places like Lester Roloff's homes or Hiles Anderson College or First Baptist Church of Hammond or fill in the blank with any other repugnant, disgusting group that's acted under the name of Jesus Christ. It, it drives me crazy and I don't understand it whatsoever. And I don't think I ever will understand it because there's no way to you explain it away. But that's the most political I, I've ever gotten on the show. And I'm so sorry to everybody. <laughs> But it's true. And that's what I feel every day doing the episodes is how does this happen in a church? It doesn't make sense. And it it never is going to make sense. There's no explanation for it that's going to rationalize what's going on whatsoever. Well, it was happening in the church when Jesus was in the temple. Like that's why he had to whip those motherfuckers and flip those (laughs) temples and remind them who their daddy was. And so I think it's really fun for me because these people – who go under the skies of it's about religion and God, blah, God's fucking Santa Claus. He sees everything. So what are you doing? You know what I mean? Stop being so worried about what they're going to think about the splinter in your eye and understand that God sees everything you are doing. And when you are shielding child predators and thus complicitly, complacently or deliberately being involved 
in like child abuse on this kind of a level, like you're in trouble with daddy. It doesn't matter no, yeah. if you look all clean from the outside. Yeah. It, it's just crazy. It's yeah. If you hide it, sure. Do you look less bad in the moment? But the minute that comes out, first of all, the minute that comes out and it will come out because it's the 21st century and people have cell phones and I cackle when I see pastors try to sneak by some cover up and then someone sends me a cell phone video of it so I can post it. But then you also have beyond that. Yeah. From a Christian perspective, I'm sitting there going, don't worry about what the people in your neighborhood think. Worry about like the words that scripture has for people who would hurt a child is pretty unrelenting and brutal. And Mm -hmm. so why not just come out with it and be on the right side of that? First of all, because that's a decent thing to do. But also, you've got a lot of stuff coming your way if you're going to do this. And I appreciate you. I know this is a very weird and dark wrap-up, but I really appreciate (laughs) what you're doing with the Trouble Tea Industry because you're literally looking at an organization, I say organization, a collection of organizations that has just commoditized child abuse and has received government funding to abuse children and has received on the nonprofit side church funding, God's money, if you want to put it that way, which might get mm-hmm. someone to listen, put God's money toward abusing God's children. And I don't think God's happy with that. And I don't think that there's, I don't think anybody that's finding out about it is happy about it. The day of judgment, let's keep using biblical language. The day of judgment's <laughs> coming on these kind of places that think they can operate this way in the 21st century, where all this information can be shared on a podcast and can be Googled every five seconds if you want to find a new story. And I think that we have to keep shining a bright light on it. So I appreciate you doing it. Can you just tell my audience how they can find your stuff, how they can find out more about the troubled teen industry and give us a couple calls to action? Because I know for sure I sit there sometimes going, what do I do? How do I help? I'm pissed about this. How do we change things? And can you just point us in the right direction what to do? Sure. So we are at Talk Troubled on all the social media and the podcast is available everywhere. And if it's not, just email me the troubled podcast at Gmail and I will resolve that immediately. Calls to action. Number one, mental health access is paramount. So Amanda and myself and other survivors have a nonprofit. We need to recruit way more providers and raise funds to get survivors access because you mentioned Agape and the guys at Agape are they're not their numbers are coming up so incredibly fast right now since covid them losing their jobs and being in isolation again the suicide rates in our community are horrifying and most of us including myself literally live in survival mode cptsd suicidal ideation land this is just our life that's mm-hmm. the number one that's the most important thing if you want to help survivors we need help to mental health like access because some people genuinely don't have it Awareness-wise, talk to everybody about the New York Child Victims Act, which obviously needs to be replicated in every state or statute of limitations should be like lifted because we're decent human beings and children need time to process trauma and thus speak up. But you only have literally 80 days from today, which is in January sometime, whatever, to file a New York Child Victims Act case. And that's if you were sexually abused by anyone at any time in the state of New York that's a lifted statute of limitations. And this is the last opportunity for that. So that's really important. Just follow up with your favorite survivors. There's lots of independent groups doing individual things. There's tons of petitions right now to close specific programs. And Amanda and the Circle of Hope Girls and the Agape Boys 
are going to be doing a field trip next month in Missouri. So we'll be on the ground there. Hopefully we can have some people call in with you or whatnot while we're there so that you can be with us in spirit and just educate yourselves. My favorite line graphic novel is Joe versus Elon. It's made by a survivor of the infamous Elon school, which had a fighting ring and had a murderer there and was around for 30 years in Maine. My two favorite documentaries are The Last Stop film, which is on Amazon Prime right now, and awesome. Fix My Kid, which you need the secret password for because Mel Sembler and all those guys get it taken all the time because it's about straight and kids. But yeah, we definitely we cannot move forward until we reach a critical mass of awareness because it's an open secret and everybody knows about it. And so until we reframe the way we look at mass legal for-profit child abduction, detainment, torture, rape, and murder, then we're not moving forward. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely, guys. Check out the Talk Troubled podcast uh, or the Troubled podcast. It's Talk Trouble, Talk Troubled on social media. And be keeping an eye out for all the stuff that's getting put out there. They're doing an awesome job. And uh, be sure to check out those films that, that were mentioned, The Last Stop. And what was the other one? It's called... Fix, fix My Kid. Fix My Kid. Awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check out The Last Stop on Amazon Prime as soon as I can. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys listening. I know I this stuff just gets me fired up because I don't understand. I just don't understand how this has gone on this long. I don't understand with all the awareness being raised right now, why it feels like the wheels are taking so long to turn. But if we can all just start raising our voices a little bit and pushing this forward, I think we'll see some big changes. But Miranda, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, for sharing your perspective. And I hope it brings a lot of awareness to what you're trying to do over there. No, thank you so much for sharing your platform with survivors. I really hope that with your help and the help of other allies, we can really see an end to this. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.